Hey everyone, Amber here. Today, the Obsessed Network is launching a brand new podcast called Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan. And we're going to play episode one for you right now. Each week on Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan, Daisy tells real stories of hauntings, Bigfoot encounters, UFO sightings, near-death experiences, and anything else that feels just beyond what we can easily understand. She has a passion for these kinds of stories, but she's also a skeptic. So while she's your guide on these journeys into the bazaar, she's also like, show me the receipts. New episodes drop every Friday morning, and there are three full episodes available for you to binge right now. So after listening to this, go find Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan wherever you get your podcast to subscribe and listen to the next two episodes right now. Okay, enjoy the episode. Have you ever bought a house? It's nerve-wracking. Can I actually afford this? What if I lose my job? What if I get sick? What if the housing market crashes? What if there's a flood? Do we need earthquake insurance? What if some crazy person has been watching over the house for almost 100 years and sends me creepy, harassing letters with veiled threats against myself and my family? Okay, maybe you never thought about that last one, but maybe you should. My name is Daisy Egan. I'm a Tony Award-winning actor, a published writer, and a true crime obsessive. And this is Strange and Unexplained, a podcast that explores all the oddities that carry on right under our noses. On June 6th, 2014, Maria and Derek Broaddus and their three kids bought their dream home at 657 Boulevard in Westfield, New Jersey. I mean... Obviously, the kids didn't buy the house because kids are useless resource vampires. I should know. I have one. And yes, I love him very much. But if he asks for one more toy he'll never play with, I'll have to declare bankruptcy. Anyway, the broadest kids were 5, 8, and 10. The house was a 3,900-square-foot, 6-bedroom, 3.5-bath mansion. They paid $1,355,657. I have about $500 to my name. I live in a two-bedroom rental with my partner and our son and dog, and we are bursting at the seams. What I wouldn't give for one extra bedroom, let alone two. The first I would use as an office. The second I would completely soundproof so I could spend hours screaming the obscenities I hold in every day. The property taxes alone for the year the Broadduses bought the house were more than I was paying in rent that year. Of course, Los Angeles is no Westfield, New Jersey, but still. Before we continue, just a note about the name of the street this house sits on for clarification, and so I don't get a bunch of tweets telling me I'm an idiot. Because I may be an idiot, but the address is 657 Boulevard. As in the name of the street is Boulevard. My editor read that and was like, you forgot to put the name of the boulevard. And I was like, no, the street is called Boulevard. And she said, it's Boulevard Street. And I was like, no, it's just Boulevard. After six more rounds of the who's on first of street names game, she gave up and accepted the only logical answer. The city planners fell asleep in the middle of street naming day. Back to the Broadduses, who had purchased the house quietly without a for sale sign ever having been put out front. 
hired a contractor to renovate because when spending $1.4 million on a home, you want to put your own stamp on it and make sure it doesn't remind you of whatever riffraff was there before you. And when you spend $1.4 million on a home, you are likely to have another $100,000 to throw in on the decoration because capitalism is working for everyone. On June 9th, three days after the sale of the house was finalized, Derek went to the house at 657 Boulevard to oversee the construction. He checked the mailbox and found a letter addressed to the new owner. There was no return address. The letter read, Dearest new neighbor at 657 Boulevard, allow me to welcome you to the neighborhood. How did you end up here? Did 657 Boulevard call to you with its force within? 657 Boulevard has been the subject of my family for decades now, and as it approaches its 110th birthday, I have been put in charge of watching and waiting for its second coming. My grandfather watched the house in the 1920s, and my father watched in the 1960s. It is now my time. Do you know the history of the house? Do you know what lies within the walls of 657 Boulevard? Why are you here? I will find out. The letter went on to describe the Broadus' minivan and the renovation workers. I see already that you have flooded 657 Boulevard with contractors so that you can destroy the house as it is supposed to be. Bad move. You don't want to make 657 Boulevard unhappy. It went on. You have children. I have seen them. So far, I think there are three that I have counted. Do you need to fill the house with the young blood I requested? Better for me. Was your old house too small for the growing family? Or was it greed to bring me your children? Once I know their names, I will call to them and draw them to me. As if answering the question barreling in neon lights across your mind, the letter continued... Who am I? There are hundreds and hundreds of cars that drive by 657 Boulevard each day. Maybe I am in one. Look at all the windows you can see from 657 Boulevard. Maybe I am in one. Look out any of the many windows in 657 Boulevard at all the people who stroll by each day. Maybe I am one. The letter ended with, Welcome, my friends. Welcome. Let the party begin followed by a signature typed in a cursive font, The Watcher. It was postmarked June 4th. The house sale wasn't finalized or public until June 6th. Derek called the police because, duh. Apparently, the responding officer read the letter and said, what the fuck is this? Which, of course he did. It's New Jersey. He asked Derek if he had any enemies and then suggested he move a piece of construction equipment so it couldn't be used to break a window because Lord knows you can't break a window with literally anything else. Good work, officer. Derek went back to their other house and showed the letter to Maria. I can only imagine that Maria was like, fuck no. They emailed the previous owners, the Woods, asking if they ever received a letter like this. The Woods said they had received a similar letter a few days before they moved out, but that it wasn't threatening, just weird. So they threw it out. If the Woods got a letter a few days before they moved out, it was even longer before the sale of the house was public. How did anyone know the house was sold? Maybe whoever this was saw them packing up? Still, weird. The Broadduses and Woods went to the police together the next day. 
I guess the what the fuck is this and maybe move that ladder wasn't a satisfying response to concerns of a stalker hinting at shit hidden inside the walls of their new house. The police were like, uh, don't tell anybody about these letters. All your neighbors are suspects now. Welcome to the block. Sometime in the next week or so, some new neighbors asked if they could have a tour of the house. Derek gave them a tour, which is an interesting choice for someone who is currently being stalked by an unknown and clearly unhinged stranger. Boundaries, dude. During this tour, one of the neighbors said that it would be nice to have some, quote, young blood in the neighborhood. Okay, maybe this is some weird colloquialism of Westfield, New Jersey. Like, it's just normal for everyone to go around calling children young blood. That neighbor would have been at the top of my suspect list at this point, with big arrows pointing to their name. Still with no idea of who their stalker was, the Broadduses persisted in their remodel, and the family often spent time at the house, though they still hadn't moved in. Things happened as renovations continued, such as one morning when the contractor came to find the heavy sign for his business had been ripped out of the lawn. Two weeks after the first letter arrived, Maria found another letter in the mailbox. This one read, Welcome again to your new home at 657 Boulevard. The workers have been busy, and I have been watching you unload carfuls of your personal belongings. The dumpster is a nice touch. Have they found what is in the walls yet? In time they will. The letter named the broadest children by birth order and their nicknames. I am pleased to know your names now and the names of the young blood you have brought me. You certainly say their names often. About one of the children, the letter said, Is she the artist in the family? And claimed to have seen her painting on an enclosed porch, which was hidden from the street by vegetation. Apparently, it would have been really hard to see what was going on on that porch unless someone was behind the house or right next door. The letter went on, 657 Boulevard is anxious for you to move in. It has been years and years since the young blood ruled the hallways of the house. Have you found all of the secrets it holds yet? Will the young blood play in the basement, or are they too afraid to go down there alone? I would be very afraid if I were them. It is far away from the rest of the house. If you were upstairs, you would never hear them scream. Will they sleep in the attic, or will you all sleep on the second floor? Who has the bedrooms facing the street? I'll know as soon as you move in. It will help me to know who is in which bedroom. Then I can plan better. All of the windows and doors in 657 Boulevard allow me to watch you and track you as you move through the house. Who am I? I am the watcher and have been in control of 657 Boulevard for the better part of two decades now. The Woods family turned it over to you. It was their time to move on and kindly sold it when I asked them to. I pass by many times a day. 657 Boulevard is my job, my life, my obsession. And now you are too, Braddis family. Welcome to the product of your greed. Greed is what brought the past three families to 657 Boulevard, and now it has brought you to me. Have a happy moving in day. You know I will be watching. In one of the letters, the watcher wrote, Are you one of those Hoboken transplants who are ruining Westfield? Side note, Maria grew up just a few blocks away from 657 Boulevard. 
But you know what? The animosity towards transplants, I get it. In the mid-90s, my neighborhood of South Park Slope, Brooklyn, began to get overrun by recent graduates from liberal arts colleges who apparently had no time to be neighborly toward those of us who'd been living there for decades. If I had thought to write weird letters to drive them out, I totally would have, but I was too busy being obsessed with boys and crying into my pillow while listening to Tori Amos. The letter went on. The house is crying from all the pain it is going through. You have changed it and made it so fancy. You are stealing its history. It cries for the past and what used to be in the time when I roamed its halls. The 1960s were a good time for 657 Boulevard when I ran from room to room imagining the life with the rich occupants there. The house was so full of life and young blood. Then it got old and so did my father. But he kept watching until the day he died. And now I watch and wait for the day when the young blood will be mine again. 657 is turning on me. It is coming after me. I don't understand why. What spell did you cast on it? It used to be my friend, and now it is my enemy. I am in charge of 657 Boulevard. It is not in charge of me. I will fend off its bad things and wait for it to become good again. It will not punish me. I will rise again. I will be patient and wait for this to pass and for you to bring the young blood back to me. 657 Boulevard needs young blood. It needs you. Come back. Let the young blood play again like I once did. Let the young blood sleep in 657 Boulevard. Stop changing it and let it alone. Honestly, I don't even know where to start with this one. I've read it over and over. I think it's fair to say that whoever wrote this letter either has an incredibly active, if chaotic, imagination and or their very mentally unwell. It seems like they're beginning to have trouble separating their own identity from that of the house itself. They seem to be in some kind of psychic battle with the house, a tug of war with the house over their own soul. They go back and forth between claiming to be protecting the house and protecting themselves. I will be patient and wait for this to pass and for you to bring the young blood back to me. 657 Boulevard needs young blood. They imply that the house needs children in it for some reason. Like the house feeds off children's energy, or maybe it literally feeds off children, like some kind of vampire house thing. Okay. But the writer of this letter goes from saying the house needs young blood to saying, Wait for the young blood to be mine again. Is this guy the protector of the house or the house itself? Now, here's a funny quirk about parents. Begging them to bring their children to a place that you claim to be watching, telling them no one will hear them scream in their basement, asking which bedrooms they'll be sleeping in. Parents don't take well to these kinds of things. If your main goal is to get young blood into the house, maybe... Don't be like, I know your kids' ages, names, and nicknames, and I'm tracking your every move. It's a bad strategy. If it were me, I would be like, hey, neighbor, welcome. Can't wait to have a barbecue and meet you guys. I'll bring the potato salad. Not your house will consume your children and no one will ever hear them scream. 
Also, if you're that worried about what someone is doing to the inside of the house, maybe explain the history of the house in a way that isn't the plot of a bad 1980s horror film. You know that weird psychological condition where people claim to be in love with inanimate objects? Like people who want to marry the Eiffel Tower or the Golden Gate Bridge or like their fifth grade algebra textbook? Maybe this is like that, but this person and the house are in the middle of a really acrimonious divorce with a vague prenup. The house is like, I asked for these very simple things, Todd, and you couldn't provide. And Todd is like, I'm doing the best I can, house. Do you know how hard it is to get people to move their children into a vampire house? Well, it wouldn't be that hard if you'd stop being such a creep about it. How dare you? I wasn't even into young blood until you wouldn't stop nagging me about it. Noah Baumbach should write that movie. So, after reading this last letter, Maria called the police again. She and Derek decided not to bring the children to the house anymore. Good call. They also began discussing whether or not to move into the house at all. They had already sunk $100,000 of renovations into the house on top of the $1.4 million they plopped down in the first place. Now, I'm no housing market expert, nor have I ever had a million and a half dollars to sink into anything and assess how I feel about it, but it seems to me that this would have been the right time to put the house back on the market and hightail it the fuck out of New Jersey. After I squandered most of my savings from being a nominally famous child actor on Doc Martin's Manic Panic and Thrift Store clothes, I really leaned into the 90s, you guys. I had enough left over to buy a small house in North Hollywood. Very shortly after moving in, I began noticing young men walking by the house, pointing to my car in the driveway and saying things to each other in what I later found out was Armenian. When I would drive by the house they hung out at, they would point and leer at me. I was young and dumb, and it never occurred to me that these kids were having the same reaction to me that I had to the Vassar grads who showed up in my neighborhood in Brooklyn the decade before. But it was all it took to get me to sell the house and get out of there. In retrospect, it wasn't the smartest financial decision I ever made. The point is, I would have been out of that house at 657 Boulevard faster than a millionaire sells stocks on insider information. A few weeks later, another letter came. This one wasn't released to the public, but it's reported to have included... Where have you gone to? 657 Boulevard is missing you. 657 Boulevard needs a smarter spokesperson. At some point in all of this, the neighbors at 633 also received a letter from the watcher. Unfortunately, they threw theirs out. I would love to know what that one said. Finally, the Broadduses put up surveillance cameras. After letter one or two, I would have had every inch of that house, the yard, and the block covered by cameras. I would have hired someone to stake out the house 24-7. I would have done background checks on every single one of the construction workers working on the house and every single one of the neighbors. Also, what's in the walls? When someone ominously asks if you've found what's hidden inside the walls of your new house, maybe you'd want to, like, look into that? Like, I don't know, x-ray the house or something, sonar that shit. When I was reading up on this story, I thought it's 100% one of the construction workers working on the house. Who else would have had that much access to the kind of information the watcher had? But how would that have worked, exactly? They would have had to know about the sale of the house before anyone else. 
They would have had to mail the letter before the sale closed. They would have had to have known which construction company the Broadduses were going to hire or somehow managed to get hired after the company had already taken the contract at 657 Boulevard, which definitely would have pointed to them as a suspect. And then what would that person have done anytime they had to perform actual construction tasks? Like the foreman or whatever says, George, knock down that wall, and he just, like, freezes or starts to cry. And then the boss would be like, what the hell is wrong with you? And he would say, what? I can't destroy the historical integrity of this house. The house wouldn't like it. It'll be mad. Also, I need some young blood ASAP. And then the boss would have made some kind of sexist joke about how George had better pull out his tampon and knock the damn wall down. It just doesn't work. The first suspect police looked at was the next-door neighbor. I'll call him ML. ML was in his 60s and lived with his 90-year-old mother and his siblings. He had schizophrenia and was known for walking through people's backyards and looking in their windows to look at renovations. The easel on the Broaddus' porch where the daughter was painting could be seen from ML's house. ML and his family lived in the house since the 60s and were the oldest family in the neighborhood. When questioned, ML denied knowing anything about the letters, and there was no evidence linking him to the letters. The Broadduses hired a private investigator, a forensic linguist, and an ex-FBI profiler. The profile they came up with based on the letters was that this person was in their 50s or 60s and was a voracious reader. They said the quantity of typos and errors showed erratic behavior. Listen, if typos are the litmus test for erratic behavior, then I must be a complete mess which checks out. The profile also found a seething anger toward wealthy people, but, I mean, who isn't seethingly angry at wealthy people? Am I right? He also concluded that the lack of profanity given the level of anger suggested the writer was less macho, to which I say, fuck you. As a test, the Broadduses and the police sent a letter to ML and his family claiming 657 Boulevard was going to be demolished. Despite not getting another letter from the watcher in response to this threat, the police brought ML in again for questioning and again got nothing useful. The Broadduses then hired a lawyer who brought photos to ML and his family showing that the easel was visible from their house. Once again, the family was like, bro, we have nothing to do with this. Bill Woodward, a house painter for the Broadduses, said that he noticed the neighbors living behind the Broadduses kept lawn chairs really close to their fence facing the Broaddus' house. Oddly, though, it doesn't seem like those neighbors were harassed by the police nearly as much as ML and his family. There is no information on these neighbors being questioned or cleared. DNA was found on one of the envelopes the watcher sent. It was female DNA, so naturally the investigators went back to ML and his family and asked for a DNA sample from ML's sister. It wasn't a match. Look, I know that in a horror movie, the house with the 90-year-old widow and her adult children, one of whom is gossiped about for being strange and wandering around looking in people's windows, is always the first suspect. But those are the people who always end up being the ones that stop the bad guy and save the day. Everyone knows this. ML and his family are clearly the Boo Radleys of this story. The reason I'm not saying his name is because he was cleared, and obviously he and his family have endured enough suspicion. It's probably a fucking nightmare for any of them to go grocery shopping anymore, what with the neighborhood knowing how guilty everyone thought they were. You can look it up. It's not a huge secret. I'm just not in the business of putting innocent people on blast, as the young people say. 
Once ML and his family were cleared and there was no clear scapegoat, neighbors started to theorize that the Broadduses fabricated the letters either to get out of the sale because of buyer's remorse or for insurance fraud or to get a movie deal. But A, the sale of the house was final when the first letter came. B, I'm pretty sure some weirdo is sending us letters claiming to be the protector of our vampire house is not covered by insurance. And C, that's an expensive scheme just to try to get a movie deal. You're telling me the Broaddus has spent nearly $1.5 million on the house and renovations in order to cook up a story that may or may not sell as a movie idea? You know what you could do with $1.5 million? Literally make a movie. The Broadduses had to move in with Maria's mother since their house had sold and they didn't want to move into the watcher house with something hidden in the walls in a soundproof basement. It's one thing to walk into Cheers and have everybody know your name. It's another to have some creepy-ass stranger who you've never met know your name and the names of your children. Derek became a depressed mess, and Maria was diagnosed with PTSD, despite the fact that there was nothing post about this shit yet. I would call it during traumatic stress disorder. Eight months after purchasing 657 Boulevard, the Broadduses decided to sell because they are decent people, they felt compelled to tell prospective buyers about the letters. I feel like that's akin to telling a potential sex partner about your STIs. It's just the right thing to do. But it doesn't often get you what you want. Looking at the Zillow activity on this house over the next four years is like reading a five-act Greek tragedy. They listed the house in 2015 for more than they bought it because of the renovations, but word had gotten around about the watcher letter in part because they told them, and people were understandably hesitant to buy. A month after listing the house, they lowered the price by $100,000. A month after that, they lowered it again. A month later, they lowered it another $100,000. A month after that, they took it off the market. A year later, they relisted the house. Two months after that, they lowered the price. You guys, I hate this so much. In 2017, the Broadduses tried to sue the former owners of 657 Boulevard, the Woods, claiming, among other things, intentional and negligent infliction of emotional distress. They argued the Woods should have told them about the letter from the watcher before the sale was final. I don't think that would have made a difference. They said the letter was odd, but not threatening. Sounds to me like the letter came across like, Hey guys, thanks for taking care of the house. I've been watching it all my life. Like if I got a letter like that, I'd be like, uh, okay, and toss it. Which is what it sounds like the Woods did. It would never occur to me to save something like that and show it like it's some kind of black mold report. The Woods countersued for defamation of character. Both suits were dismissed because they were ridiculous. On Christmas Eve that same year, multiple neighbors received anonymous, hand-delivered letters that accused the recipients of spreading false information about the Broadduses. According to a piece about this whole nightmare in the cut, the letters also included stories about, quote, recent acts of domestic terrorism in which signs of brewing mental illness had gone unnoticed. The letters were signed, Friends of the Broaddus Family. Derek later admitted to sending the letters at his wit's end in a desperate attempt to get people to stop throwing accusations around about his family. Bad look, Derek. Bad look. Not exactly a way to get your neighbors to stop theorizing that you were in fact behind the creepy letters. 
Maria and Derek managed to rent the house out sometime in 2018. I don't know how much disclosure they practiced with the renters. Two weeks after moving in, the renters received a letter from the watcher. It said, Violent winds and bitter cold to the vile and spiteful Derek and his wench of a wife, Maria. You wonder who the watcher is? Turn around, idiots. Maybe you even spoke to me, one of the so-called neighbors who has no idea who the watcher could be. Or maybe you do know and are too scared to tell anyone. Good move. 657 Boulevard survived your attempted assault and stood strong with its army of supporters barricading its gates. My soldiers of the Boulevard followed my orders to a T. They carried out their mission and saved the soul of 657 Boulevard with my orders. All hail the Watcher! It said that revenge could come in different ways. Maybe a car accident. Maybe a fire. Maybe something as simple as a mild illness that never seems to go away, but makes you feel sick day after day after day after day after day. Maybe the mysterious death of a pet. Loved ones suddenly die. Planes and cars and bicycles crash. Bones break. And here's the craziest part. The renters were like, uh, please install security cameras. Once again, if I had received a letter like that, there would have been a daisy-shaped hole in the fucking wall and a dust cloud following me out of town. Also, the Broadduses had taken the cameras down? What in the actual fuck? I'm not sure when they did this, but considering the Watcher remained at large, this seems a little useless. And also, is it just me or does the Watcher absolutely live in the house behind 657 Boulevard? The one with the chairs facing the neighbor's house? There's not much information about anyone looking into these people. This may be the weirdest thing about this whole story. Like, the letter literally says, look behind you, and nobody looks behind them? Derek took the letter to the police, and they said there was nothing they could do, which seems completely insane to me. If the very definition of the police is not to protect citizens and their property, then what is? A little less than a year after renting the house to the bravest or possibly dumbest renters on Earth, the Broadduses relisted the house for sale for just under a million dollars. Four months later, in July of last year, someone with nerves of steel or brains of spaghetti bought the house at 657 Boulevard for $959,000, which is a real bargain, considering. I desperately want to meet those people. There has been no word as to whether the new owners have received any threatening letters. I like to imagine that The Rock bought the house and comes out front once a day and yells, try me, motherfucker! Does The Rock curse? Can we get someone on that? Apparently, Netflix bought the rights to the story in 2018. Henry Joost and Ariel Shulman from Paranormal Activity 3 and 4 are set to direct. So, maybe the neighbors were right, and this was all about a movie deal. Maybe it was Maria and Derek writing the letters after all. 
Maybe their whole plan was to put themselves and their family through five years of headaches and legal battles, live with Maria's mother, go into debt to buy another house to live in, and lose over $400,000 in the sale of a house they never got to live in, on the exceedingly rare chance that someone might be interested in making a movie that may or may not make money. It sounds like the American dream to me. In which case, well played, Maria and Derek. Well played. And Netflix? I know a great podcaster slash screenwriter if you need one. Next time on Strange and Unexplained, The Bermuda Triangle, I'll tell you two completely insane stories in which large groups of people vanished in the world's most notorious body of water, one of which happened last year, and you definitely didn't hear about it. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. This episode was written by me, edited by Claire Smith-Marish, and researched by Haley Gray, with voice actor help from Ryan Garcia. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. Our episodes are mixed and edited by Jennifer Swatek. If you like our show, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. Thanks for checking out the first episode of Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan. There are two more episodes available to listen to right now, and new episodes drop every Friday morning. Go find Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan wherever you get your podcasts.